a spontaneous and unrehearsed interview. Uh, hello, and welcome to the 111th episode of Curiosityness. Uh, I'm Travis DeRose, the host of Curiosityness, and this episode. We're learning how the hell baseball happened. So I have on Thomas Gilbert. He's the author of, author of a book called How Baseball Happened. And this is the best subtitle ever. Outrageous Lies Exposed! Exclamation point, the true story revealed. So I'm not even a huge baseball fan. I like to go to a couple games and watch it occasionally. And I like to play baseball. But that's about it. But this is a super fascinating history story, origin story. Uh, and I think you're going to like it even if you're not super into baseball or haven't, not at all, because it's more of a history story. But there's a kind of a few things where these, you know, a story was totally fabricated. It's totally fake, made up by Spalding sports equipment guy. And uh, there's other stories that may have some truth and things, but there's weirdly like multiple stories of how baseball happened. And even the MLB today is saying something that may not be true, but uh, me and Tom here get to the bottom of it. So Tom tells us, you know, why these stories are in existence and kind of what actually happened. And it's still a good story. It's a good story. So um, let's just get into the episode. And um, Tom is going to tell you exactly the history of baseball and you know how it happened but then there's all kinds of like going pro and different leagues and there's a whole bunch to it so it's fun um here's the episode 111 with thomas gilbert right now all right we're going what's up tom how you doing man uh excellent excellent good good to have you on a little a little behind the scenes rough start for us but uh, i think we're all good now so i appreciate you working with us there um, but man, excited to talk. I mean, I got, I got to start off in preference by saying, or, uh, preface this by saying, um, no extreme baseball historian, or I wouldn't even call myself, you know, I, I don't really watch baseball much. I, I go to maybe two games a year. Don't, unless, you know, the Dodgers are in the world series, I probably won't even watch the world series, but, uh, enjoy baseball, played it a bit when I was younger. And, uh, you know, that, that's where I'm at. So, you know, Forgive me if I, I'm not, you know, as entrenched as you may be. Well, um, no forgiveness necessary because um, you are the kind of person I wrote this book for. Mm. So I have written a lot of books about baseball history, and I know all the people that know a lot about early baseball history. There aren't very many of them. And uh, to me, it was more interesting, you know, and I was trying to look at it from a different perspective in this book. Um, and, um, you know, my... My idea for the book was to think of someone like you, someone who's interested in things, uh, knows something about American history. Um, it's not it's surprisingly uh, uh, not ba- as baseball-centric as you might expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, people might pick up the book and be surprised that it's about two-thirds American history because that was really the idea of looking at the context of all these things and seeing if there was something new we could find out about early baseball. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> I... You know, I think it only has significance if it's of interest to people other than people like me who care about every little detail of early history. It's only interesting if it matters now. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, totally. Well, and that's the fun part is it's it's not a story just for, you know, baseball fans. It's something anybody can be interested in, which, you know, is de- is definitely true. It's a fun story. But I mean, I mean, I guess we'll just dive into it, but you kind of mentioned like, "Oh, you may have heard this kind of thing and this this story which, you know, may or may not be accurate and, you know, all this stuff." But I feel maybe me, I have the benefit of um, you know, like a baseball history virgin. I haven't even been exposed to the to the lies and deceit. So, uh, you know, you were able to to put me in the right direction right from the beginning. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 most people have heard these stories, the yeah. ones that I started the book with. And I really, you know, I, I thought about not going there first. Mm. But you have to. I realize you have to because so many, you know, I give talks uh, and tours and things, and I talk a lot about baseball history public events and there's something that always happens when I tell I say for the thousandth or ten thousandth time that Abner Double A had nothing to do with the beginning of baseball, something like that. There's always some people waiting for me at the end of the talk and they just come up and say, I get that it could be wrong or, or it could be a little wrong, but how could it be a hundred percent false? <laughs> and that's actually a pretty interesting question. Uh which I try to answer in my book because um you know, people get history wrong all the time. Mm-hmm. But it's not too often that things that a lot of people believe or everyone has heard are this wrong. And as I discovered when I really researched the stories behind these stories, they're wrong. They were never, they weren't believed by the people that told them. So we're talking about something that was made up for a reason that has nothing to do with the truth. Mm-hmm. And that's actually more interesting. <laughs> yeah, it's so crazy. because tells you something, tells well, you something about how they started. Yeah, yeah, no, I, I mean, that's what's so interesting, too, is is normally there's, you know, you kind of get the story and there's the grain of truth or you could see how it started from there and expanded and people, you know, whatever, exaggerated and stuff, but ain't really the case with this. No, it's really an odd historical issue. And, you know, my friend John Thorne, who's the official historian of Major League Baseball, he said, he might have said it in the introduction to my book, but it, he put it in a funny way that, for a hundred years, fans have known where baseball came from. Historians weren't so sure. <laughs> right. And that's because there are all these stories out there that are complete baloney. And, um, uh, you know, the other way I try to explain it to people is if you've ever done genealogy, which I end up doing a lot trying to find out about early ball players, and I'm just naturally curious about people's family history, almost always people tell lies about their family history. Almost always. And, you know, what I discovered was the lies are really revealing. The facts, not so much. <laughs> so, you know, it's pretty boring if I had a friend whose family, you know, had a very typical story of being Irish and being convicted of a crime, their ancestry was sent to Australia for punishment. That's pretty boring. But the lie they made up, that he was he was uh, exiled for holding illegal masses in his basement, that, you know, that's a good story. <laughs> but it tells you something about who they want to be and how people think of themselves. And really, almost every family story has at least spin, if not outright live in it. And those are the ones that tell you who you are. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, totally. So can we start with, can you just share? I mean, well, should we he- hear the the familiar uh, lies? Yeah, I can, I can do the short version because um, I'm guessing that a lot of people are familiar with these stories. Mm-hmm. And what really surprises them is that they're not true. But just to explain them very briefly... So there's two basic, there are variations, but there's two basic uh, stories that people have heard growing up if you're a baseball fan about where baseball came from. And the first one I heard was Abner Doubleday, um, who uh, most people have at least heard his name. 
he was a teenager at a prep school in Cooperstown, New York in 1839. And he said, hey, guys, one day he said, hey, guys, I've got an idea for a game. There's actually a famous Bob Newhart routine that <laughs> makes fun of this <laughs> because it's completely not impossible to believe. I think when I was 10, I didn't quite believe it. Um, but, you know, people do believe it. And um, it was invented in the early 1900s. Uh, by an, a blue ribbon panel appointed by Albert Spalding, who was the most powerful owner in Major League Baseball, the founder yeah. of the National League, owner of the Cubs, and it had one. It was it was propaganda out and out because mm-hmm. Albert Spalding knew it wasn't true, and all the people on the committee knew it wasn't true. But it had one very specific point, which when I tell you what it is, you're going to think it's strange. But you have to understand America in the early 20th century. It was because people were speculating, not really unreasonably, that baseball came. Uh, from an English game called Rounders. And if you, you may have never heard this, and uh, I wouldn't blame you, but if you Google it, you'll see that theory is still kicking around. That there's a kids' game called Rounders where you hit a ball with a bat. It's not very much like baseball, but people like to um, speculate that baseball came from this game. And given the our relationship with England and the fact that baseball was uh, you know a business that was marketing itself as 100% American, Mm-hmm. And, and, and not English, not foreign in any way. These were sort of fighting words. And Spalding wanted to nip this one in the bud. And the whole Doubleday story is, in fact, it's propaganda. It's designed to kill the whole topic. So how do you kill it? Well, if an American person invented it at a particular time and place, it can't be English. That's the simple explanation. Wow. Yeah. So you, you invent an inventor. People do it all the time. And, you know, Johnny Appleseed or whatever, you, somebody invented something. And then you find out the real story isn't that simple. But actually, you know, Doubleday was picked not because he was a plausible inventor. In fact, the funny thing about Doubleday is he was a great guy. He was a military man who fought in the Mexican War and the Civil War and distinguished himself at the Battle of Gettysburg. And, um, you know, was a, was a um, great American. However, he also was a compulsive diarist and he published volumes of memoirs from which one can learn that he was about as uninterested in baseball as you could possibly be <laughs> for a person of his generation. Wow. Like the subject never, never comes up. Um, and, you know, what his actual connections to baseball boil down to almost nothing. Wow. Basically, the main one being his great-great-nephew bought the Mets in 1980. But, um, <laughs> so, now, why was he picked? Well, he was dead. Mm, and okay. he... There are a couple of reasons, but the other, the really the main one was he was a Civil War hero. If you said to someone in 1900, who's that very double day, they'd say, oh, he was a great Civil War hero. So once you've, and, and, you know, wrapping yourself in the flag is a thing baseball does. So it's not only a product of the creativity of an American boy at a particular time and place, and it has nothing to do with England, but it's also almost unpatriotic to question it at this point when you've credited a Civil War hero with it. Yeah, right. I know that may all sound very crazy, but that's really what the explanation for the story. And the people that told the story knew it wasn't true. Mm-hmm. So and um, so, okay. really, the well, just real quick, Tom. The the I guess kind of the main motivation for Spalding to make up that story was just to kind of separate it completely from it being a British invention. Yeah, it, it boils down to baseball's marketing yeah. uh, strategy, and you know, it gets even weirder because. Um, the truth is that baseball doesn't come from rounders. I mean, there are people that believe it does, but I don't believe it does. Mm-hmm. And it, you know, it gets into a very boring topic that we don't want to talk about right now. But you know, how do you evaluate what the significance are, is of similarities between one game and another? And 
I'm going to give you a very vigorous argument if you ever want one that baseball does not come from rounders. Okay. <laughs> okay. And then I'm not the only person that believes this. It's, it's very, very different. It's, it's very similar. Rounders and cricket are very similar. And uh, the farthest I'll go is that there's a distant, distant relationship, but not one developing from another. Because mm-hmm. hitting a ball with a bat is just part of our culture and also England's culture. But if you saw a game of rounders, you'd think it was um, cricket, you know, with, with a shorter bat. Mm. It's not, it doesn't have the fundamental characteristics of baseball. So if it, you know, it's wherever baseball came from, and it's somewhat mysterious, there's no evidence of it being played in England, anything like it being played in England. Mm. So it probably is American. So this is what I mean by the weird part. It's a lie, a self-conscious lie told, uh, told in the service of something which is probably true. Yeah. Because <laughs> Spalding wasn't stupid, <laughs> and he knew that baseball, and he believed for very good reasons that baseball didn't come from Rogers. But he also wanted to kill the whole subject. Okay, I see. So that's that's a very strange story you could write a book about. But the beautiful thing is that there's no truth to it whatsoever. So we don't have to worry about it as historians. It's only part of the historical story because it tells you something about how Major League Baseball saw itself in the early 1900s. Mm, yeah. And, you know, it's news to a lot of Americans that we once felt this sense of rivalry, inferiority, even you know, competition, even fear with England. But that's a theme that as you go back in history, it comes more to the fore. Um, you know, we have nativism in our politics. And when I say the word, the first thing that pops into your head is, you know, it's sort of racist. You don't like immigrants. You, you particularly don't like brown immigrants or black immigrants. Um, you know, when a certain uh, recent president talks about it, he means, you know, he says things like, why don't we get more Norwegians or English people here? Well, nativism in the 19th century had just as much of a problem with English immigrants as any other kind of immigrants. Oh, okay. I mean, they, they took it seriously. Yeah. When, when they, the nativist movement in the mid 19th century, which actually fed the rise of baseball, and we could talk about that, um, because it was American, right? One of the questions I answer in the book is, well, why don't we play cricket? Yeah. Almost every, almost everybody else does who was a former British colony. But we're different because we insist on our differentness. And we always insisted that we were something different, that American democracy was a, an un-English thing. It was a product of our own values and, and genius. And um, for reasons like that, when you understand the culture of the 1840s that baseball came out of, you begin to realize that even though all the early baseball players played cricket, that wasn't going to be our national sport. Okay. We were never going to play a foreign sport. And, you know, um, this is a long, complicated topic that I deal with in my book, but it's a good example of, so basically the theme of my book is, and I look at baseball, how it happened from the beginning, which is in the 1830s and 40s, got rolling in the mid-1850s, and by 1870, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It got started in the New York City area and in a very short period takes over the whole country. It's sort of an idea that we need a national sport and this is it. And um, it was a movement, really. And, and you'll never get any of this in baseball history books because they, they don't look outside the game for what's going on in society as a whole. And this is what the theme of my book is that I'm finding better answers outside the world of sports than the ones inside. Mm-hmm. You know? How do you? How do most baseball historians answer the question when you find out that all the early baseball players in New York City and Brooklyn, for instance, played cricket? Also, 
Mm-hmm. Why did they pick baseball? Why did they pick this under underdeveloped kids game that they had to they had to perfect themselves instead of a mature sport that already existed? Um, yeah. You know, that's um, the answer to that is outside the game. And if you don't look outside the game, you're going to come up with an answer which most history books do, which is somehow baseball suits Americans better because of our temperament or something. <laughs> okay, that, jeez. I mean, that's ridiculous because we know they played it. Right. I mean, I could give you dozens of names that wouldn't mean anything to you that are important early baseball players. They were totally proficient at cricket and belonged to cricket clubs, and they played cricket at a good time. And then, so you realize it's when the time comes that we decide, and there was a time we decide we need a national sport. You know, it, the topic doesn't even uh, occur to the, a modern fan because we take it for granted that there is such a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. We have arguments over what is the national sport? Is it still baseball? Is it football? Is it something else? But the whole idea, until the mid-1850s, you can't even find anyone talking or thinking about the idea of a national sport. It literally doesn't exist. In fact, adults, this is another part of my story, adults don't play sports in America. Yeah. Except in a very small pocket. You know, for two reasons. One, they don't have any leisure time. Most Americans, if you're in the country, you're working all day long, at least six days a week. Mm -hmm. If you're a laborer or a recent immigrant in the city, ditto. Um, rich old money kind of people in the cities of New York, Boston, and Philadelphia were not interested in team sports. They did things like yachting, mm, sure, um, shooting. Um, so, you know, the, the sort of whole middle of my book is about who were these people that show up in cities because of economic and social change that are, um, I call them an emerging urban bourgeoisie. I didn't coin that phrase, but they're these people that are very familiar to us, but they're new in the 1840s and 50s. They're well-off people who aren't old money rich, and they're not working class. Um, There's something new, and um, they're, in fact, the beginning of the modern American middle class. Right. They're very, they're very like us if, if you and I are, are in that group. So they're kind of sophisticated economically. They're versatile. They'll invest in things. They'll start companies. Um, they have a little money and a little bit of leisure, um, and... They also feel this sense of participation with our young country and making something out of it. You see that that is a theme. And this is why, you know, sometimes people, um, their eyes get wide when I tell them, they say, well, why? Why do we need a national sport? Why do we suddenly decide we needed one? Well, it's because it started in New York because this was the, the, the bat and ball game that was native to lower Manhattan. That's the only reason. It's the power of New York plus the fact that there were kids batting ball games all over the United States that were different. Mm-hmm. There was the one in Philadelphia that's completely different. There was one in Boston that was different. There were versions all over the country. If you got in the time machine and went to 1830, we'd see kids hitting a ball with a bat by different rules. Yeah. But what we call baseball comes entirely out of the New York version, which was played in lower Manhattan. Um, okay, so people who were familiar with that game, and now they're adults, and now they're members of this class, and why do they decide we need a national sport? And they have two very serious reasons. Um, so, you know, to understand this, you have to forget everything we think about baseball. Because we think of baseball primarily as an entertainment business. And it's something you watch and you consume. Yeah. The people that founded it had no, uh, it was the furthest thing from their mind that they were creating a business or that even anyone would watch it. Really? They were creating something for people to play, yes. Oh, so the two serious purposes were they thought they 
a lot of people thought at the end of the revolution from then for the next 50 years that our biggest problem as a country was the states were disjointed. They were like separate countries. And some of the people, and, and they, they needed to be culturally unified, economically unified, unified in terms of transportation. And a lot of the people were working on all three. That's what's so interesting to me. So some of the people that were pushing baseball were doing things like building railroad lines between New York and Philadelphia. Huh. Same people. And the other problem was we had public, terrible public health. I mean, the cities in particular were very unhealthy. And, you know, given what we just lived through, it's a lot easier to understand than it would have been a few years ago, that there were waves of epidemic disease that were killing New Yorkers and Philadelphians and Bostonians. It actually lowered your life expectancy to move to an American city in the 19th century. Yikes. Yeah. So we're talking cholera, yellow fever, typhus. And, um, well, they didn't understand those diseases because they didn't understand infection until the later part of the century. So in the time when baseball was born, there were public health reformers that wanted to do something about this. Um, there were a lot of young doctors who felt like we can tackle these problems. And the way they went about it, they didn't know what infection was. So they didn't know that it was about bacteria and water, for instance, if you're talking about cholera. But they did know that people, adults, didn't exercise, didn't take good care of themselves, didn't get enough fresh air, didn't get enough sun. And those things actually do help your health. So it's funny. They were pushing a thing that's really not the answer to cholera, but it doesn't hurt to be in better shape sure. and improve your immune system a little bit. And the same thinking was behind things like building codes and requiring you know, air and, and um, sunlight and buildings. Um, so... Part is the whole chapter in my book about how the public health reform movement, all these doctors were, were pushing baseball very early on because they, they saw it as a way to get adults to get out there and exercise. I mean, this also sounds nuts to a modern American because we all are, you don't have to convince anybody today that exercise is good for you. Mm -hmm. But the newspapers in the 1830s, 40s, and 50s are full of arguments that you shouldn't be in the office all day, that you should get out there and run around a little bit. And, you know, don't get fat, don't, don't sit all day, it's terrible for you. And it yeah. was. So, um, you know, those are the two serious purposes, kind of a patriotic purpose and a public health purpose. I see. And, you know, you can see why you don't read too much about this in, in most baseball histories. But if you don't understand that, you don't get why it even happened. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's not a, it's not a bad story necessarily, it just maybe doesn't have the, uh, the compact flair that, you know, these invented <laughs> stories do. Um, but I guess, so just to kind of summarize, I, or I guess, well, uh, you know, because you talked about baseball wasn't really, you know, a spectator sport or anything like that. It was just kind of meant to be played. Was cricket at that time, was that a similar thing? Or were people, was that more, did they have fans and stuff like that? No, cricket was also was a participant sport. And, and it see. was played basically, in America, it was a much higher percentage, let's say, we'll pick a year, 1850. There was a much higher percentage of people in the United States who were born and raised in Great Britain. Oh, I see. I mean, now it's a pretty low number. I think it's 6% in 1850. Wow. Okay. And so and they would be in pockets. You know, uh, there'd be a bunch of English uh, workers at a textile mill in Wisconsin or something. And uh, there were places where a lot of people were from there, and they formed cricket clubs. And there mm -hmm. were cricket clubs in New York and Philadelphia, and they particularly long-lasting in Philadelphia and in Boston. Um, but no, they didn't attract fans. And in fact, nobody tried to attract fans. And this is one of the more fun parts of the story is why they showed up. And I tell that story in my book. Yeah. They, they showed up uninvited to the party. 
That's so crazy to me. Yeah. Nobody, there was baseball and everyone, it, 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 it caught on. I mean, it caught on very quickly. But at a, the first important thing that baseball did was, now, Brooklyn is a borough of New York now, but it was an independent city before 1898. Oh, okay. And what you have is you have a, this actually ended up really helping baseball. You have a big, powerful, rich city on the island of Manhattan called New York. 1,500 feet across the East River, you have this little, tiny, sleepy kind of ferry stop that was booming, and it was catching up with New York really quickly from 1820 to 1860. It goes from about 20,000 to about a quarter of a million. And um, it's ambitious, and it sort of see, it defines itself against New York, which it's still doing. I'm in Brooklyn right now, but um, in many ways, defines itself against New York. So um, it's a natural rivalry in every way. Um, and it was certain in the mid 1850s, around 1854, um, there were a bunch of people in Brooklyn that just found, formed baseball clubs because it was that, at that point it was even called by many people the New York Game. Really, there were four. Yep, there were four principal baseball clubs in the island of Manhattan, and they actually took the ferry to New Jersey to play in Hoboken. And if you're a Redney baseball history, you've probably heard about this. You know, there's a place called the Elysian Fields in Hoboken. It was like a private park. That's where they played because there was no room in Lower Manhattan. Um, and it was baseball was kind of steaming along. The best analogy is it was sort of like a country club sport. It's like there were people that were into it. And there were people that didn't know about it or care about it, and nobody watched it. Mm -hmm. um, in 1854, there's this great letter written by the president of one of these four baseball clubs, William Van Cott. He was a judge. And he wrote a letter to all the newspapers trying to talk up this game, baseball. And he says, we have at least three clubs with 90 regular players. And that was his brag, his boast. That was the state of baseball in 1854. That is crazy. Yeah, like almost non-existent, it seems like. Exactly. Insignificant, 99% of Americans have never heard of it. So, but then in Brooklyn, a bunch of guys in Brooklyn decide in three or four different places, we're going to form these New York style baseball clubs and we're going to beat them at their game. Ah. As part of the whole sense of competition with this old city. And Brooklyn is an energetic young town, a city that's putting a lot of effort into it and it pays off. And in four years, they feel like they're good enough to beat the New Yorkers. Only four years. And in 1858, they challenge the New York clubs to a best two out of three all-star series. Ooh. Yeah. And this is a totally new idea. And they were going to have it in Hoboken, which was basically just a big grass park. And then they began to realize about a month before that this was attracting a lot of public attention. They could feel the buzz. Ah. Uh. And for the first time, like regular people were getting interested. And... They ended up moving it to a horse racing track in Corona, Queens, because there was a railroad station there and because the horse racing track had about 5,000 seats and it had things like bathrooms. So um, now at that point, when people were, were starting to cover baseball in the 1840s and 50s, they would mention if a large number of people were watching. Mm -hmm. They thought a large number of people was maybe 50. Oh, Okay. It would say, like, you know, there's 50 or 75 friends of the ball players, or the couple of bookies or something like that was watching. Right, like a Little League game today. That was remarkable. That was remarkable, yeah. It would be like, you know, if you were playing a pickup softball game and 100 people were there watching, it might be able to say, hey, well, what's so interesting about that? Yeah. Yeah, so how many people show up to game one of the 1858, what was called the Fashion Court Series after the horse racing track? 10,000 people. Wow. 
and it blew people's minds. And the descriptions are, are funny to read. It was just chaos. Uh-huh. And the other fun part was that because they were going to mess up the uh, dirt infield of the horse racing track, they charged 10 cents for groundskeeping. Mm. And they were thinking they would charge maybe 500 or 1,000 people 10 cents. But they charged 10,000 people 10 cents. Yeah. And, um, well, this did not go unnoticed by the business community in Brooklyn. <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. There's this thing that people will pay to see. And four years later, a businessman who has nothing to do with baseball, because baseball's not interested in fans yet, <laughs> um, and or selling tickets or anything like that. Uh-huh. Uh, a guy named William Kamier, he was actually in the leather business. He builds a sports facility in Williamsburg, which... Uh, it's a short distance from where I am now. And uh, he includes a baseball park, a beautiful park with uh, an infield and outfield, dugouts, uh, changing rooms, stuff like that. Cool. And he tells the all the clubs, you want to play here, no problem, uh, for free. But I'm charging admission. Ah. Yeah. So you, it took about half a season for, for the ball clubs to go, hey, wait a minute. <laughs> Somebody is making money off us. Yep. And that's really where the, the boulder starts rolling downhill of professionalism. Wow, that's so crazy. So it, it really yeah. started out of the uh, the rivalry is what kind of got everybody together watching this, and then they're kind of exactly. like... Exactly, and that's, it brought all this energy into baseball, and it led to the formation of hundreds and hundreds of clubs, and visitors or tourists who would come to Brooklyn in the late 1850s uh, would say, um, it's like there's a, like a craze or a mania for baseball here. Everybody's playing everywhere. Wow. And so what you're seeing is, when you, and you read about the fans, and you read these descriptions by uh, journalists who, who are shocked and speechless, in some cases disturbed by how many people are care who wins a baseball game. Yeah. And, and they're actually disturbed by it. And, and you're laughing to yourself because you understand this phenomenon of fan identification and rooting. Yeah. But people within baseball don't understand it. Yeah. And they're not sure they like it. <laughs> oh, really? Well, they thought, I mean, Henry Chadwick was a great baseball journalist who was interested in promoting baseball and was kind of uh, the godfather of baseball in the early days. He, in 1860, there was a championship series between two Brooklyn clubs that again attracted like five-figure crowds. And he, in his coverage, he's um, shocked and disturbed by things like booing the umpire. mm and um, cheering and, and all the, the strong feelings, they disturbed him. And he was afraid of gambling. And he thought that, <laughs> this is kind of funny, the only thing that would explain these passions is that these people had bet on the game. Right. Got to have a financial but, interest. But they didn't. Like, he actually literally didn't know what he was looking at. That's crazy. What he was looking at was modern fandom being born. I mean, you can literally trace it to these games. Uh-huh. And I do it in the book. I talk about how the crowds changed and how they got bigger and how they had different kinds of people in them who had nothing to do with baseball and didn't know the players. And then the fact they were willing to pay. And this is really, you know, um, the, 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 base, the event becomes something else, right? It's not a game anymore. The, the fans become the event. Mm-hmm. And this is really the, I mean, it's literally the beginning of the modern sports fan. Yeah. Well, it does sound, you know, kind of crazy when you put it like that, that like, these people are going to take their time and you know travel to this place to this field and watch strangers play a game that they you know it just why would they expect anyone to do that but now yeah, it's like and then, of course, 
Yeah, and that changes everything, right? So now there's newspaper coverage. Oh, uh, yeah. And, you know, one of the things that I use to try and explain this to people, the newness of this and the weirdness of it is um, we have games that nobody watches, right? Sure. So, you know, if my aunt's playing racquetball at the club, nobody cares. <laughs> Uh, or some kids are playing hopscotch outside of my house. Who, who cares, right? The newspaper is certainly not covering it. Yeah. But what if you went outside and there were thousands of people and, like, you know, serious people, adults, watching, like keeping score, betting, and, and rooting? Yeah. At this point, it's news, <laughs> right? Yeah. So it's not the game. It's the it's the fans. And, you know, this is sort of the beginning of, this is the the beginning of baseball turning into something else. Mm-hmm. And it, it's kind of amusing to me that, you know, I explain at length how baseball is a product of what's really like a social movement, a national social movement. Um, and yet it turns into something else. And the two most significant things that happened in the amateur era, which is what I'm writing about before 1871, when the first professional league is formed. Yeah. Um, all the players are not paid or, that's an oversimplification, but they're not supposed to be paid. Uh, and they all have separate lives outside of baseball for the most part. Um, the two most significant things that happened in that period were unanticipated by the people who were driving the action. Like they never dreamed that this would happen. They never wanted it to happen. Yeah. How strange for them. So what about, uh, I mean, we talked, we asked about cricket, but other sports of the time, were there any fans like that or did baseball kind of start this fandom thing off? Well, yeah. Um, it, it, yes and no. So there was um, there were some other games that were pretty popular. Now, like I said, if you go back far enough, there's boat games everywhere. Mm-hmm. But adult, a few adults in Philadelphia played a thing they called town ball, and so there was cricket in these pockets of Englishness mostly. Then you had town ball in Philadelphia. Um, you have a thing called the Massachusetts game. It had other names in Boston. And those games were very different from baseball. They were bat and ball games, but they were very different. And the Boston game did attract some fans. But, you know, the thing that made the New York game different. And so New York, the, the part of the story I'm telling is how the New York game, it crosses the river to Brooklyn. It generates this rivalry between two cities. And that's something Philadelphia and Boston don't have. Mm-hmm. And it brings all this energy into the game. And then you've got, of course, one of the two cities is one of the most powerful, is the most powerful city culturally and economically in the country and it has a long reach and there's new yorkers going everywhere um and they're bringing the game with them so you know it shows up in new orleans before it shows up in baltimore because of new york's connections to the cotton business it shows up in san francisco before it shows up in st louis because of the gold rush oh i see so these people are bringing it there new yorkers themselves who are going around the world and the country for other reasons are bringing baseball Ah, okay so so this was a big help. And base, so baseball had to, it had to knock off cricket and it had to knock off the Boston game and the Philadelphia game. Those were the main adversaries. And the Philadelphia game just folded. The Boston <laughs> game put up a little bit more of a fight. The funny thing was the Boston game had um, overhand fast pitching. Oh. Which, yeah. And, you know, historians end up arguing, they usually end up making this deterministic argument that whatever happened had to happen. So they'll say, well, New York game is more popular because it was a better game. But how is it a better game? I mean, I, I'm, I'm reading descriptions of the Massachusetts game, and there's guys 45 feet away throwing the ball overhand as fast as they can. That sounded like fun to me. The mm-hmm. New York game at that point is soft underhand pitching. Oh, really? Um, yeah, it really had nothing to do with um, 
the superiority of the game. It had to do with who played it. And, um, you know, you all, you'll read in a lot of baseball histories and a lot of histories that baseball is somehow a rural activity that goes to the city. That's only because we have this romantic, unrealistic idea of what rural life was like in the 19th century. Mm. It literally went the other way around. Yeah. It's an urban thing because only city people had the, the leisure and they had space because the cities weren't as crowded, but they had the leisure and the money and the inclination to play a game. Yeah. And, you know, to change their lives in this way. And they were interested in self-improvement and taking care of themselves. And if you're spending 14 hours a day or 16 hours a day on a farm, you really don't have time to think about stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, no, that um, makes total yeah. sense when you when you think of it in that kind of light. And you're not thinking of it as a like something to go watch as an event. It's something to do yourself. So it makes sense. And it worked, right? It, it actually got everybody playing. Mm-hmm. And um, the um, you know what's interesting to me is about the Philadelphia town ball and about the Boston game. Uh, they they sort of started a few steps down the road toward becoming a modern sport. And they never, they never made it. The Philadelphia game just wasn't played by that many people. And, and, and the Boston game had sort of comically changeable rules, even though people kind of like to watch it, which intrigues me. But um, it, it just put up no fight against the New York game. And mm-hmm. a really interesting detail to me is that neither one of those sports has an origin story. Really? Yeah, and that's really a reflection of their lack of ambition. Like, you know, I remember uh, many years ago in another life, uh, a marketing guru told me to sell a product you gotta have a story the story doesn't have to be true (laughs) and it's true that when you sell a product you tell a story and boston and philadelphia weren't selling anything to anybody so they didn't have a story right okay the new york game was the one that decided to be the national game and you know i'm not just inventing this you know there's no plan that we have in writing but you can see by their actions what they're doing and uh in 1857 there was sort of this groundbreaking event where the New York clubs and the Brooklyn clubs had a meeting, which became an annual convention, which became a governing body. The first year it was just a meeting about common rules and rules for interclub competition. And in 1858, they decided let's create something called the National Association of Baseball Players and we'll control the sport. You know, you need at a certain point, you need a governing body. But it's Nobody laughs at the fact that it was called the National Association of Baseball Players because it became national. But when it was called that, there were 25 clubs, 24 of which were in New York City and in Brooklyn. Yeah, the audacity to call it the national. Exactly. And so people sort of interpret it in different ways. But to me, it's a statement of aspiration. Yeah. Man, that's so and, fascinating. And they, they were very concerned with spreading the game, and they did everything they could to spread it. Mm-hmm. And this raises interesting issues from, from many points of view that have nothing to do with sports, like the Civil War interrupting this period. Mm. Mid-1850s to 1870s, 15 years in which New York goes from something no one's heard of outside of Lower Manhattan to being our national game, and even called that, and played coast to coast. Um, and it was interrupted by the Civil War, uh, really at a key moment for baseball, because baseball hadn't really spread to the South, except in certain places that had close relationships with New York City. I see. And um, there was a controversy in 1867. Uh, I have a whole chapter on how the Civil War affected the game, which is kind of a difficult question. But in 1867, when the war was over, um, something interesting happens. Um, baseball, in its own idea of itself, the National Association professed to have social standards. This was a game for people who were respectable. 
it wasn't supposed to be just the best athletes you could find. Um, and so a lot of this stuff was sort of bogus, and especially as things got more competitive, but there was still this momentum for this idea that a baseball club should be respectable gentlemen of some kind, not literally gentlemen, but respectable people. You don't have, um, you know, there's a limit to how low you can go socially, even <laughs> if a guy can play catcher. So that was part of the sales job, really, when you, when you get right down to it, selling it to the respectable middle classes. It's not like boxing. Oh, okay. Or just really said that was the sport of the low gaming hells. <laughs> so it's supposed to be better than that. Uh-huh. And well, until 1867, every club in the National Association, which by that point numbered in the thousands, was made up entirely of white people. Really? And social exclusion and racial exclusion are going together here in an unspoken way. No one's even talking about it. And um, in 1867, a very respectable group of African Americans in uh, Philadelphia form a club called the Pythians. And they're doctors, lawyers, and teachers. They're just like the white players. Uh-huh. In fact, socially superior to many of the Philadelphia ball club. Sure. And they asked to join the National Association. And this causes a huge problem for baseball. Not because it's all made up of racists. Because I don't know what percentage of them were racist. But a lot of them fought in the Civil War for the Union. And a lot of them were fervent members of the abolitionist movement. Oh. It was quite common for baseball clubs to be made up of people in the same political strike. And there were like 25 clubs called Union <laughs> for political reasons. And, uh, you know, I could give you a long list of important early baseball men who risked their lives or died fighting to free slaves. So it's not as simple as it's a racist institution. Mm-hmm. But the problem was, and whether it was 60, 40, uh, you know, support, uh, opposition to integration or the opposite, I don't know, but there was a significant number of people that would have had no problem with an African-American club in the game, wow. per se. But they turned them down. They talked them into withdrawing their um, uh, application. And the reason really was uh, we just had a civil war and, you know, this is, um, and on one level, it was uh, these white men don't want to have a, another fight about the same topic. But mm. a big part of it was it had to be marketed to the South, and it was a delicate moment for that. Oh. Because baseball, baseball did not want to be identified with a region. It wanted to be national. Yeah. And, you know, this is something that was replicated in other institutions. It was the black African-Americans get thrown under the bus because, and then, because whites need to be unified. Yeah. Yeah, so that's, a, you know, part of the story. And it's a kind of sad part of the story. Yeah. So we don't get integration until professionalism, which may, because in professional baseball, it matters a lot more whether you can hit. <laughs> yeah, okay. right. Yeah. So is that, I mean, is that the Jackie Robinson story then? No, uh, baseball was integrating in the late 19th century. Oh, so really? The first, yep. The first professional league was in 1871 and it was all white, but mm-hmm. as baseball spread and other minor leagues were formed, professional minor leagues were formed and, Major League Baseball is starting to happen. The National League is founded in 1876 in the Midwest. But there's this spread and growth of professional leagues. There's more and more pressure to uh, hire that African-American second baseman who can hit. Yeah. Because you got to win the game. And it's a business now. And this is serious. And, of course, it's controversial. You can follow the career of some black players like Frank Grant, who played in the 1880s, uh, gets booed in Toronto and cheered in... Buffalo, and uh, there's all these 
there's sort of a fluid racial situation. People aren't sure how they feel about integration. In some places, it's popular. In some places, it's incredibly unpopular. But yeah, there's a whole forgotten story of baseball. I mean, the sad and cynical reason for how it happened, why baseball, was, there's several dozen African-Americans get into organized professional baseball in the late 19th century. Um, one makes it to the major leagues in 1884, um, uh, maybe seven. But um, the reason it, it wasn't stopped as it would be in the 20th century, was that their baseball just didn't have a central authority. Mm, if okay. it had a commissioner and it had organized baseball was more organized, they would have stopped. I see. So basically because these leagues were operating independently and different people had different opinions, that enabled this to happen. Yeah. So um, Jackie Robinson is the first, when people say he's the first African-American in the major leagues, they should say, the first African in the major leagues in the 20th century or the first African American in the national league. Yeah. He's not the first African American to be in the major leagues or to play pro ball that, uh, he was the, there was a in period of integration. And then there was a period where it was, uh, diminished and, and entirely eliminated ending in the 1890s. And then it took about, it was about 50 years of ex- total Jim Crow in baseball. I see. Yeah, okay. That's so happened. that's what happened. Okay. Yeah. So there was like, uh, disintegration, I guess. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, I, ne- I had no idea about that story. Didn't know that at all. Most people don't. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interesting what-ifs. And, you know, the truth is, I asked myself, could baseball have integrated in 1867? I mean, it could have. There was uh, a parallel African-American baseball scene that was quite competitive that newspapers basically ignored. Uh-huh. We, we know, you know, little shards of information about it. But we also know that when the time came that it come out in the open in the late 1860s, there it was. Yeah. So things like that don't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. You know, Frederick Douglass's son played second base for a top African-American team. Oh, that's cool. Oh. Yeah, so there's this, you know, part of the historical uh, challenge, if you're writing about the 19th century in America, is you have to constantly come to grips with the fact that newspapers are a filter, and a distorting filter in many cases, because... They're not telling you, they're not trying to portray society in a comprehensive way. They're trying to sell newspapers to a particular kind of person. Yeah. And that person has no interest in what's going on in the <laughs> African-American neighborhoods where he lives. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, I mean, to me, this is all exciting and interesting. Dude, but it, it you know, is. It, it, yeah. Yeah. Um, and the stories in my book. And, um, you know, there's, it's not just the double day story. That there's other stories that baseball has told that people have heard and believe that aren't true. Um, there's an idea that a guy named Alexander Cartwright is in the Hall of Fame, and the club called the Knickerbockers, that was one of the early New York clubs, somehow invented baseball. They're completely 100% wrong. They did play it, but they didn't invent anything. Huh. Um, and I explain why in the book. Um, you know, you um, the Cincinnati Red Stockings of the late 1860s, have you ever heard of this club? No, not the this Red Stockings. So. In 2019, yeah, the, the modern Red Sox are named after them. Yeah, sure, so I figured. The Cincinnati Red Stockings were a Cincinnati team. And what they're famous for is they were undefeated from late 1868 all the way through the 1869 season into 1870. Jeez. So they went, they went 84 and 0. And this is before there was a schedule, organized leagues. They were barnstorming around the country. But they were playing top teams, and they were winning all their games. Mm-hmm. That's the team that um, 
Major League Baseball basically calls its ancestor. Oh, okay. They're, they're supposedly the first professional team. Mm. And, you know, if you want to find out that they're not, you can read my book. Yeah. But, um, you know, they were interesting in many ways, but there's a story that isn't true about them either. Um, but because they're claimed as an ancestor by MLB, uh, they're, they're kind of whitewashed. Oh, I see. And, um, I was actually shocked what I found out when I looked into, I mean, I'm always surprised when I find out something new about it, something as famous as this club. Mm-hmm. You know, MLB in 2019, it seems like a century ago, but they wore patches on their sleeve for the 150th anniversary of the 1869 Red Sox. Really? Yeah. And so it's, and it's this, this is kind of an all fabricated story too? Well, they were a real team who were really good. Yeah. But the fabricated part is that they were somehow, they've been made to serve MLB's idea of itself. Mm-hmm. So again, it's marketing. So yep. they're clean and corporate. This is what you'll read about. If you Google them after we talk, you'll see they're clean, they're corporate, they're the first professional team. They weren't hypocrites. They admitted paying their players. They had them under contract. They had a board of directors and they sold stock and they were just like a modern baseball team. And almost none of those things did they really do first. Mm. They were innovative in other ways. But they also had um, backing from organized crime. Huh. And believe me, no one knows this. <laughs> Um, you know, there was a lot of kind of uh, dirty money involved in early professional sports, and but I didn't realize it went all the way back to 1869. But yeah. when I did, you know, when I started realized I had to write about the 1869 Red Stockings, I get this feeling of dread, which you get when you're a historian. You think there's no way I'm finding anything new about this. You know, it's it's like I'm going to write an article about Neil Armstrong landing on the moon. What what new could I possibly find out about this? Mm-hmm. But you know, 99% of the time, you do find out something new. Yeah. And what I did was I followed my uh, MO of getting off the field and saying, who are the people that are behind it? Who's paying for things? Who's assembling the team? Who are the people around it? And why are they doing this? And I got some wild answers. And it had to do with politics and, and, and organized crime. Man. And uh, yeah, if anybody wants to care about the 69 Red Suns and you want to be shocked, um, I'm surprised more people aren't angry about this part of my book. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Not chapter, chapter eight. <laughs> <laughs> I was expecting, uh, because MLB is so uh, ze- you know, jealous of its reputation and the reputation of this team, that you know, I probably just haven't been noticed. But um, uh, I know they wouldn't be happy about this. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they're still, that's still kind of the story that they're, you know, spreading is is the one that is not really true, then. I mean, it's a weird, the whole thing is weird because uh, uh, they never played in a professional league. Um, some of the other late amateur clubs did, but some of them were a little bit unsavory. You know, it's, it's, um, it's, it's, it's an odd, it's an odd phenomenon. Yeah. But, um you know, I, again, I, I talk about what it doesn't mean, but also what it does mean, because here's what they did that was really innovative. So, you know, I hope I'm not making your head spin, but at the end of the amateur era, we're talking in the late 1860s. So after the Civil War, baseball boomed as mm-hmm. a business, and it's everywhere. And teams that are calling themselves amateur, they don't belong to a league where they play a schedule. The way it worked was you would go on tours. This is what baseball clubs did to make money. So if you're the Brooklyn Atlantics, you go a tour of the Midwest. You go to Pittsburgh, St. Louis, Detroit, and you'd play the best local team and you'd sell tickets. Mm. And 
you also bring some bookies and some of your backers would bet money on the game and stuff. And so there was some suspicion when you lost a game that you should have won, things <laughs> like that. But I mean, what's interesting about that to me is that this is why leagues are organized by road trips and homesteads. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be organized that way. Because mm-hmm. in the amateur era, it was very courtly. Like you would go, um, New Haven, a New Haven club would come and play a club in uh, Brooklyn. And they would um, play them, and then they would uh, have a banquet and sometimes put them up in a hotel. And then they would return the visit like a social call. Uh-huh. And um, then on these road trips, uh, it was sort of an exchange of hospitality. And this was part of the culture of baseball. Um, we take it for granted that you play a baseball season by going on these road trips. And then you play three or four games in every city, and then you move on, and then they come and see you. Mm-hmm. But the only reason it works that way is because it's baseball tradition going back to the pre-professional era. Um, so uh, anyway, the the, um, the sense that, uh, and they're, they're selling tickets, they're making money, and most teams, what they did was they divvied up the gate among their players, and the, uh, the Atlantics would just simply divide the gate. And the Sensei Red Stockings were a little different in that they kind of separated labor and management. And they mm. paid them a salary. They weren't the first to do that, but they were early in this respect. They paid them a salary. And in fact, they kind of screwed their players when you get right down to it. You know, history books tend to say, wow, you know, uh, George Wright made $1,800 a year. That's a lot of money then. But I'll give you an example. The Atlantics, who were amateur, um, for the one game they played against the Red Stockings in June of 1870 when they broke the uh, undefeated streak, they got $368 each. Really? So... The Reds are going all over the country, working their butts off, playing hundreds of games. Yeah, for and they're getting paid. The best one is getting eighteen hundred bucks. Yeah. So, but what was different about them besides the, you know, the way they were organized, which was not they weren't the first in that, but they were early in that. What was really different about them was, in spite of all this creeping professionalism, the great amateur era clubs in the late eighteen sixties were still intimately tied to the community. If we went and saw a Brooklyn Atlantic game in 1867, almost every player was a guy who grew up in Brooklyn. Mm. Yeah, and they might have been making money from the games, but they didn't jump from club to club. They didn't didn't sign free agent contracts. They came up through youth organizations that were related to the big club. There was sort of a pyramid. What the Red Stockings did was they chucked all that. And it's because they didn't have a base of amateur talent in this young city of Cincinnati. And they... They went out and they bought every player they could get that was good. Wow. So that was the difference. And when you get right down to it, um, it was a phony kind of relationship between the, the, the Cincinnati Red Stockings and the people of Cincinnati. I mean, the people of Cincinnati were turned on by this and they bought tickets, but they're really pretending mm-hmm. that this club represents them. The Brooklyn clubs, the Philadelphia clubs, the Boston clubs at that point, they actually are made up of your neighbors and people that grew up in your community. Yeah. So it's really chucking that pretense. You can see why Major League Baseball doesn't lead with this one. Mm-hmm. It chucks the whole pretense that the club represents the community in a real way. Yeah. Um, and in fact, in June 14, 1870, when the Brooklyn Atlantics defeat the Cincinnati Red Stockings to snap 84-game winning streak going back to the fall of 68, uh, that's the way it's covered in the Brooklyn paper. It's kind of interesting to read. They don't say, hey, our amateur guys, they don't pretend that they're amateur. Our amateur guys beat their pros. What they say is, who are these Red Stockings? They're just mercenaries. That's what they say. 
Mm. Our guys are Brooklyn boys. It's not about who's getting paid. It's about how they relate to the community. Yeah. And you know that famous Seinfeld bit about rooting for laundry? Yes. <laughs> yes. Well, the Cincinnati Red Stocking fans were rooting for laundry. Yeah, really. Yeah, because I mean, that's kind of, uh, that's what it is, you know, kind of for these modern teams is, you know, all these guys are not from, you know, they're not from Anaheim playing for the Angels. Exactly. And totally true. And it's, it's, it's why fans get so turned on, I think, when, when the exception happens. Mm-hmm. Because deep down in our DNA, we kind of feel like they should be more part of our community. Yeah. It'd be nice. Right? And, I mean, you always hear, if you're listening to sports radio, you're hearing, oh, the guy, he's a Southern California boy. He'll sign with the Dodgers or Angels. Then it turns out he goes to Milwaukee for more money. Yeah. Um, right. In the real world, it doesn't matter. But we yeah. like it to matter. Yeah, it's a strange thing how we do kind of, we kind of want that. But for what reason, I guess? I don't know. Yeah, I think it's ancient cultural DNA. Yeah. Man, well, it's such a fascinating story, Tom. I love hearing about this. So let's just... So I can, we've kind of got everything. I feel good about like it's we've got the whole story. But just to let me try to summarize the 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 actualish story, and you tell me if I'm right or wrong. Okay. All right. Well, good, good luck to you. Okay. So I mean, just kind of in a short, you know, couple yeah. sentences. Uh, essentially, there's there's all these games. There's bat bat and ball games being played kind of everywhere. Just people playing them. Uh, in New York, they have the New York game, which is kind of where baseball really starts or, or is can go back to that, or they had similar rules maybe. And then uh, from there, that, that game kind of gets perpetuated when these maybe kids who played it grew up and they wanted to kind of get more of a national sport. So they, they kind of perpetuate that and, and spread it. Is that close? Yeah. They, they legitimize adult exercise and then they intentionally spread it. Yes, it becomes a movement. Okay, I see. So that yeah, that, well, that's good. I mean that that story works for me. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's not the story you you hear and you see in most books, mm-hmm. and and it's it's also why all the outside forces that we're bearing on it is so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Well, and that's why it's again, like we said, you know, it's such a fun story, even for not a a base super baseball fan. It's it's a historical story that's fascinating. Yeah. Cool. Well, yeah. So, uh, for people listening, let's tell them where they can get your book. Well, the we haven't even said the name of the book. The name of the book is "How Baseball Happened: Outrageous Lies Exposed, The True Story Reveal." What a what a the title's good, but then that subtitle really gets you. It's great. I'm I, I'm glad you feel that way. We we kind of wanted to be not 100 percent serious about that. You know, a little yeah. far now. Yeah, it is a little far now. You know, there was just some sort of cheerful BS in the baseball's history. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, so How Baseball Happened. My name's Thomas W. Gilbert on the, on the cover. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, it's available pretty much everywhere. I have a website, and it's howbaseballhappened.com with Perfect. no word separate. Perfect. Okay. Howbaseballhappened.com. I'll have a link to that down in the description for people listening. Um, and click on that. Check you out. Learn all your stuff. Get your book. And, uh Man, this was great, Tom. I I had a blast. This was super fun. Thank you for coming on. Well, it was fun for me, too. Um, uh, thanks for having me on. Yes, of course. You uh, have a good rest of the weekend, and uh, thanks again. Okay. You, too. Thanks. All right. Episode's done. Episode 111 is completed. Thank you for 
the you, the listener, for being here and listening to me right now. Thanks to Tom for coming on and sharing that. Appreciate that. That was a very fun episode. Hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Maybe you know a baseball fan who would also like to hear the real story. Uh, send it off to them. Email, face, you know, social media, whatever, however you can get it off to them. I uh, appreciate that kind of stuff. It helps to spread the word. The, the word of mouth marketing is what I'm trying to perpetuate here. Uh, I'm Travis DeRose. You can find me on Instagram at TravDeRose. Uh, email me, Travis, at curiositiness.com. And uh, that's all I got to say. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you in episode 112.